We're in a series we're calling Close Encounters, and in this series we're, we're looking at everyday counters that Jesus had uh, with real people in everyday life. And I mention that because I'm not sure we really believe these people really existed. I think we think maybe they're a little fictional, kind of like, you know, Hook Finn or Batman or something. But you got to understand, these were real people who had real problems. They had real issues. They had real encounters with a real Jesus. And, and based on how Jesus related to these people and these encounters, we're learning how God wants to relate to us when it comes to our lives. Now, this week, we're going to see how Jesus uh, balanced out grace and truth when he was dealing with people. We're going to see it in the life of the adulteress. And, and this is an important message uh, for us. It's an important lesson for us to learn because if we focus only on grace in our life without balancing it out with truth, if it's all about grace, then what will happen eventually is we'll become soft on sin, we'll become soft on disobedience, we'll be more concerned about political correctness and fairness instead of being obedient to the life that Jesus has called us to. And yet on the other side, if we focus only on truth, but we don't season it with grace, eventually we'll become mean, we'll become judgmental. And let's face it, Christians are notorious for that. So this week, we're going to see this perfect balance of, of, of grace and truth in the life of Jesus. And in seeing it in the life of Jesus, we learn more about God. Because remember what Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We act the same. We, we think the same. Uh, by the way, let me just say this. We know that Jesus often spoke about truth. He had a lot to say about truth. Probably the most uh, familiar statement that Jesus made about truth, he made in John chapter 8, verse 32. He said this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Yeah, most of us know that verse. But what did Jesus mean when he made the statement? Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He was saying this. He was saying that if we're ever going to experience freedom from our sin, it's going to be because of truth. Truth is what's going to set us free. And I think what he means by that, if you're living a life, maybe you're living a double life. You're, you're living the life that we see at church. You're living the life that people see at work. But then there's that secret life nobody knows about. And it's deceit, and it's about lying, and you're covering that. And the reality is, you're worried, you're nervous, you're always looking over your shoulder. You're wondering, is this the day that I'm found out? Is this the day I'm exposed? And so you're living this life where you were in bondage, where you were enslaved. But Jesus says, when you finally come to the place where you're ready to be truthful with yourself and with God about who you are, then you've positioned yourself to experience freedom. When you discover the truth, the truth Will set you free. So Jesus had a lot to say about truth, but you may be surprised to know that Jesus never once used the word grace while he was on this earth. But I'll tell you this, everywhere he went, he lived it. Everywhere he went, every life he touched, he extended grace and truth. People didn't deserve it. He was always doing that, right? And I think one of the greatest examples of this balance of grace and truth is found in this story in John chapter 8. It is the story uh, of this encounter between Jesus and this woman who was caught in adultery. So if you have your Bibles, turn there this weekend, John chapter 8. And, and let's look at this encounter and let's see if we can discover a few things about our relationship with God. Let me set the scene if you're turning. Uh, it's early in the morning. It's in the city of Jerusalem. There's a group of people that have gathered for a Bible study and Jesus is teaching. He's leading this small group. By the way, how cool would that be? Do you think we would be more uh, 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 interested in going to small group if Jesus was leading it? I think so. But Jesus, he's leading the small, the small group. And I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's teaching. But I guarantee you they're hanging on every word that he has to say. And all of a sudden, he's interrupted by this group of angry men. 
And if you're familiar with the story, you know that they were the self-righteous men of the city. Uh, they're referred to in the Gospels as the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the legalists. They were the law keepers. Uh, they were all about truth, no grace whatsoever. So these men come, they interrupt the Bible study, but they have someone with them. She just doesn't fit in. It's a woman, she's not named here. She's not named anywhere in the Bible, but I want you to get a mental picture of her in your mind. Her hair is probably disheveled. Her makeup is smeared, or her clothes may be torn and ripped. It's possible that her arm has been scratched, bruised, bleeding from the struggle. And they bring this woman to Jesus for a very specific reason. You see the reason in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It says, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now keep that in mind, in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? In other words, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this, Jesus? What do you think we ought to do with this lady that we just caught in the very act of adultery? Now, let me just tell you, the answer was pretty simple. The answer was pretty cut and dry. In the Mishnah, which was the Jewish handbook that Jews lived by in the first century, it taught this. If a man was caught in adultery, he was buried up to his waist in animal dung, a rope was put around his neck, one man would take one end, one man would take the other end, and at the word go, they would run in opposite directions and strangle him. And I thought, wow, we have a problem with adultery in our society. I think a couple of those after church on a weekend, and we might have men keeping their pants on. You know what I'm saying? But it was pretty clear. If you were a man and you were caught in adultery, that's the way, you, that's the way life ended for you. If you were a woman caught in adultery, you were to be stoned publicly. Now, understand in our story, there's no, there, there, there's no question she's guilty. She's been caught in adultery in the very act. There's not even any question what should happen to her. The law clearly called for her execution. But Jesus, he's observing this whole scene, this whole situation. He doesn't mean, miss a thing. He knows exactly what's going on. It says in verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, why was it a trap? Well, if he said stone her, they would immediately call him a hypocrite. They would try to out him to all of his followers because understand, he's been, he's been building his new ministry. He's been building his followers by preaching a message of compassion and forgiveness and grace and love and second chances. And if that's been his platform, if he just says, kill her, stone her, that could certainly send a, a mixed message to his new followers. Plus they could say, you know what? He's all about truth, but he certainly doesn't have any grace. The only other option was to say, let her go. But then they could say, aha, you're breaking the law of Moses. You condone adultery. You're easy on sin. You're all about grace, but no truth. So I want you to notice what Jesus does in verse 6. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. See the word there, right? It's kata grapho. I'll give you a little Greek lesson. Grapho, we get our word graphics from it. And kata, anytime you see it in the Greek, I know when you're reading your Greek New Testament this week, it always means down. So he's writing down something in the sand. Now, when I was growing up, I heard my pastor say he was doodling, uh, he was stalling, he was thinking, mm, they got me this time, how am I gonna get out of this? I don't think that's Jesus. I don't think he needed a doodle. I don't think he was stalling. I think because of the way the confrontation shifts in the story, I think that Jesus began to write in the sand large enough for these Pharisees and these scribes to see a list of their secret sins. I want you to see how it shifts. Let's pretend, okay? You're going to be the Pharisees, okay? That's easy for many of you. You're going to be the Pharisees. This is going to be the sand. 
And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Jesus. Don't be bitter, okay? Um, but let's just, you're looking over my shoulder, and all of a sudden, I stoop, and I begin to write. And maybe the first thing I write is this. Why the big letters? Well, think about this. In this scene, who is conspicuous by his absence? It's the man. I mean, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Where's the dude? Wasn't he just as guilty? I mean, even in the first century, it took two to tango, you know what I'm saying? Plus, isn't adultery something that you tend to keep secret? I mean, if you're going to have an affair, if you're going to com commit adultery, don't you make sure that the door's locked? Don't you make sure that, the, that the, the shades are pulled down tight? I know because I do a lot of counseling. Don't you make sure that you delete your texts and your email? See, this is how it works in 2013, right? You do everything you can possibly do to keep the sin of adultery secret and hidden. I mean, let's face it. Adultery, that's not just something you stumble across one morning, early in the morning while you're taking a walk, do you? I've never heard of a guy who went out to t take a walk with his dog in the morning and came back and his wife said, honey, how was your walk? It's a great walk, but it's interesting. I was going through the park and I saw Bill having adultery. Never seen anything like that before. You don't hear anything like that. Why? Because you do everything you can to keep it secret. You know what I think? I think it was all a setup from the very beginning. I mean, how else do early in the morning you catch someone in the very act of adultery. I even wonder if the man who was involved in committing the adultery with her, I wonder if he's now standing in the crowd as one of her accusers. Ever thought about that? I think Jesus would. Well, the silence is broken in verse 7 when Jesus stands up and says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Go ahead. Throw it. But first, make sure that your heart is pure. Make sure that it's spotless. Make sure there's no sin in your life. Make sure that you're absolutely perfect. And then if you fall in that category, you go ahead and throw it. Give her your best shot. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the tension at this moment in the story? I bet you could hear a pen drop. And then according to verse 8, Jesus stooped down and he just continued to write in the sand. Maybe he added jealously. Jealousy, slander, idolatry. And finally you get to verse 9 and it says, At this, those who had began to go, those uh, who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Why did they leave? Because if the standard is perfection, who's qualified to stone her? You see, that's why Jesus says in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that we can't judge one another and we can't condemn one another because none of us are perfect, right? The same with these guys. So one by one, they begin to slink away. Finally, they're all gone. Think about the scene that's left. You got a woman, you got a man. 
You got a sinner, you got the sinless son of God, you've got an adulteress, and you've got the Messiah. That's the scene. And it says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where do they all go? Has no one condemned you? And, and, and the only recorded words of this woman found in the Bible, verse 11, she says this, three words, no one, sir. No one, sir. I mean, isn't that a great moment? And you'll notice his marvelous, gracious response in verse 11. Then neither do I condemn you. That means the only one who is actually qualified to condemn or refuses to do so, instead, he, he extends to her grace. He gives her what she doesn't deserve. Then neither do I condemn you, verse 11. That's grace, but notice the truth. Now go and leave your life of sin. It's like Jesus is saying to her, listen, I don't condemn you, that's my grace, but, but you gotta change your, I mean, you gotta change evil ways, baby. And I don't know if he called her baby or not. But I think Jesus basically said, if you want your life to change, if you don't want to continue to end up in situations like this, yeah, I'm not going to condemn you, and I'm even going to forgive you, but you know what? you got to get your act together. There's some change that's going to have to take place in your life, and, and that's truth. By the way, that's, that's why we have the mission statement that we have here at Hope. It's very simple. Love people where they are. That's grace. And what we mean by that is when you come to Hope Community Church, we are not going to judge you. We're not going to look down our nose at you. We're not going to condemn you. We are going to love you where you are. However, we don't want you to stay where you are. If you come here and your life is full of chaos, is this a mess? If your life is empty and without purpose, we don't want you to continue that way. We want to come alongside of you and we want to encourage you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to encourage you to become the person that Jesus Christ designed you to be so that you could live the life he designed for you to live. And I'm going to tell you, if that's going to happen, it's going to require some hard conversations. It's going to require not just grace, it's going to require some truth. When I think of this, I always think of uh, one of our staff who was an exotic dancer here in the area and she showed up on an Easter and she found Christ and her parents came to me the next day and said she's willing to quit but she can't find a job anywhere, she doesn't have any skills, she, that anywhere that she could make money like she was making at dancing, is there a job for her here at the church? And I thought, well, we've never hired a stripper. Um, And the church was smaller back then, and so I called five or six women together, and we actually had an opening for a receptionist. And I said, ladies, here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to offer this girl the job, and I'm going to ask you guys to mentor her and love her and, and disciple her, but sh she's going she's to be your task. And then I went and talked to her parents, and I said, I'm going to be honest with you. Rarely do these things work, but we're going to give it a shot. And so I met with her on Friday, and uh, I think she was a little bit stoned. And I said, okay, you can't be stoned on Monday. <laughs> we don't have high expectations, but we have some minimal ones. <laughs> and you're, you're probably going to have to find some different clothes for work than what you're used to using at work. And, uh, but show up here Monday, and, and we're going to give it a shot. About a week later, I was in my office, and there was a knock at my door. And, and uh, she came in, and she said, you know I'm living with a guy, don't you? I said, yeah. She said, did you know he's a drug dealer? And I said, yeah. She said, am I, am I gonna have to, if I'm, am I gonna have to move out to keep my job? I said, well, let me, tell you, let me tell you this. God loves you and has an incredible plan for your life. But for you to experience it, you're gonna have to cooperate with God. 
So yeah, right now I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to give you a little bit of time. But you're going to have some difficult decisions to make if you're going to become all that Christ created you to be. I love you. That's grace. But I got to tell you the truth. A couple of weeks later, she came in and she said, I want you to know I moved out. I moved back into my parents. She had a daughter. She was a single parent. I moved back in with my parents. And since then, she's finished her education. She saved her money, bought her own town home, and God continues to do a great work in her life. But you know what? It's not just enough about grace. It's got to be balanced with truth. That's what we see in this story, right? And it's interesting. We, we hear this story, and we kind of have different reactions. For example, some of you are sitting there, and this is what you're thinking. I have a story like that. My story is very similar to this woman. My life was a mess. My life was a disaster. My life was empty. It had no direction whatsoever. My life was hopeless. But then I was introduced to Jesus Christ and I invited him into my life and he forgave me and he put me on a new track and he's changed my life forever. I have a story like that woman. And then some of us, we hear the story and I'm telling you from experience, others of us think, I wish I had a story like that. Because, you know, some of us, we've been in church all of our lives. And many of us, we went to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, and we became Christians when we were little kids. And, and so, you know, we didn't do a lot of spectacular sinning. A lot of us wish we'd had some spectacular sinning going on in our lives before we found Christ. Because we read stories like this, and we hear other people's stories, and we think, well, the more we would be forgiven, well, I mean, if, we, if our life had been a disaster, if it had been empty, if it had been a mess and full of hopelessness, and then we'd met Jesus, and he would have changed all of that, and he would have saved our lives, we would be so much more appreciative, and it would be so much easier. We would have so much more incentive to be what Christ wants us to be. I mean, i got to be honest with you. If you accept Christ when you're five, six, seven, or eight, what's he going to save you from? You know, ice cream? You know? <laughs> What's he going to save you from? But if you're a prostitute and Jesus saves you, or you're a drug dealer and Jesus saves you, or you're an adulterer or an adulteress, or even better, if you're a murderer, man, that's good stuff, and Jesus saves you, you're going to be so overwhelmed by his forgiveness, you're going to love him so much. I mean, after all, that's what we've been taught all of our lives. In fact, Jesus is the one who made that statement. Let me show you where he made it. It's over in Luke chapter 7. And what's interesting is it's another encounter between Jesus and a Pharisee and a woman of a questionable reputation. Uh, she, we know from other stories she's a prostitute. But look what it says. Let me read this story to you, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. This is what, this is what God just kind of blew up in my mind. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, that begins in verse 36, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then Jesus tells a story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Denarii was about a day's wage. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I, I suppose the one who had, been for, uh, who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house 
You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now there's a couple of interesting things in this story. One is that Jesus sets the amounts of 50 and 500. And it appears that Jesus is saying, you know, there are some category 50 sinners and then there are some category 500 sinners. And let's assume for, as far as a sinner goes, a, a category 50 is the best. That means you probably came to Christ early in life and so you, d- you, didn't have a, you didn't have a notorious life. Maybe there was a little bit of gossip, a little bit of slander, a little bit of envy, a little bit of lying to your parents. Maybe you stole a pack of gum. But 50, that's about as good as you can get as a sinner. But let's say that 500 is the worst. Maybe that means that before Christ you were a prostitute or you were, you were involved in adultery or murder or maybe even worse, the sin of all sins in America these days, maybe you smoke. That's the worst, you know. And somebody asked me, will smoking send you to hell? No. It'll smell, make you smell like you've been there, but it, it, won't, it, won't, it won't send you there. By the way, I, I, I smoke cigars. I've told you guys. I don't call it smoking. I offer up burnt offerings. See, much more spiritual. In fact, last week I was in Charleston doing a wedding, and uh, some of the families that we were in a small group, this was for a single mom who'd been in the church for 15 years, raised her three sons here. God led her to this wonderful guy, and I had known her for so long, and she said, we're getting married in Charleston. I said, we'll go, and a whole small group that we were in together, parents raising teens, we all went. There was about 16 from our small group there, and the guys were around the pool, and, and they said we could smoke, so we're smoking cigars, and then one of the pool guys comes out and says, you can't, your hotel guys, you can't, got to put your cigars out. Well, like, well, you said we could smoke them. Yeah, but a lady complained. And if anybody complains, you have to put them out because she could sue us. I'm like, wow. I said, could you point her out so I could drown her? <laughs> he said, yeah, I don't have any problem with you drowning her, but you can't smoke cigars around the pole. Say, That's just kind of where we are in our country, right? But if you, know, if you smoke cigars, you're, you're like one of these 500s. So 500 represents a really, really bad center. Now, let's think about this. If 50 is the best possible score for a sinner, okay? And 500, that's the worst possible score for a sinner. Where do you rate yourself? Uh, You'd probably put yourself somewhere between the two, you know? You're you're probably thinking, I'm probably not the best, but I'm certainly not the worst. I, I, I know a lot of people that are worse than I am. Well, I have some shocking news for you. We're all 500s. We're all 500s. You know what James 2.10 says is for whoever keeps the whole law, talking about the Ten Commandments, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, one little point of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. Years ago, Billy Graham was on Johnny Carson's show and like some of you have, Johnny Carson, is that a cowboy or something? No, Johnny Carson came before Jay Leno, okay? Years ago, centuries ago, before we even landed on the moon, I think. So Billy Graham is on there with Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson asked Billy Graham this question. He said, Dr. Graham, have you, ever, have you ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? And Billy Graham said, I've broken them all. And of course, Johnny Carson's thinking, adultery, murder. He says, I've broken them all. In fact, I found the clip. Watch this clip. Buddy, everybody has broken every commandment. Yes, sir. The Bible says if we break in one point, we're guilty of all. Oh, and then when Jesus came after Moses... He explained that the, that the Ten Commandments can be broken in your heart, 
by thought and intent. So in that sense, we're all guilty, and that's the reason the Bible says that everybody's a sinner. Even Ed is a sinner. Well, that, that <laughs> comes as quite a surprise. They, they, they... <laughs> well, what was he saying there? He was saying, we're all a 500. Turn to your neighbor, wherever you are, look at him in the eye and say, I'm a 500. Just do that. I'm a 500. I'm a 500. Now, here's my question. Here's my question. If we're all 500s, why did Jesus set two different amounts? Why in his story was there a category 50 and a category 500? Let me show you. Look back at verse 39. When the Pharisee, this is Simon, when Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself. So who did Simon speak to? He spoke to himself. In other words, he's thinking to himself. This is what he thought, verse 39. If this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And look at how Jesus responded, not to what Simon said, but to what Simon was thinking. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, this is funny when you think about it. Because Simon was thinking what? If this man was a prophet, and then Jesus answers his thoughts. I would say that's a pretty good prophet, right? And this is what I began to understand. The story that Jesus tells here about the 50 and the 500, it's in response to Simon's thoughts. In other words, this story doesn't teach what we think it teaches. We think that there's some people who are really, really bad sinners. We think that's what the story teaches, that they're 500 category sinners and they've been forgiven a lot. So out of appreciation, they're gonna love Jesus a lot. And then there's some people who aren't quite as bad. Maybe they're a 50 category sinner and they only need to be forgiven a little. So they're only gonna love Jesus a little. Here's the problem with that logic. I'm married up. I'm a 500 and I'm married to 50. I'm just keeping it real. Do you know what that means? If you think of it that way, Laura can never love Jesus as much as I do because she hasn't been forgiven as much as I have. That's not what this story teaches. The story doesn't teach that there are some that are worse than others. Jesus is teaching in this story there are some who think they're better than others. In other words, the reason Jesus set the amount is because this is what Simon was thinking. He was thinking, she's a 500. And I can't believe this Jesus would even let a 500 touch him. In fact, being a 50, I can't even believe that a 500 is in my house. That's what Simon is thinking. So Jesus takes his thoughts and says, Simon, I need to adjust your thinking. Since you think you've only been forgiven for 50, you'll never love me as much as she does. But Simon, if you could just understand that you're a 500 also, you could love me as much as this woman loves me. You see, that's the moral of the story. <laughs> We're all 500s. We're all the adulteresses of the Bible, the prostitutes of the Bible, the murderers of the Bible. We're all 500s. We all owe the same amount. And some of you, you're still skeptical. You're looking around thinking, I, there is no way in the world I'm as bad as that dude over there. I've taught that dude. There's no way I'm as bad as that person is. In fact, you're getting a little irritated and starting to think through the email you're going to send me. But do you know why I know that we all owe the same amount? It's pretty simple. It's because Jesus paid the same amount for every person here. He didn't pay 500 for me and 50 for Laura. He paid the same amount. 
And I got to tell you, when I was in my office at home and I realized the truth of what Jesus was teaching, I was like, yes, Laura is just as bad as I am. <laughs> Probably not the right application that you want to get out of the story, but it's true. And it's true of you too. From God's perspective, you're just as bad as any person who's ever lived. We're all 500s. That's truth. The good news is God still gave his only begotten son to die for you and me. And that's grace. But here's the thing. The minute we stop understanding that we're all 500s, that's when the atmosphere of Hope Community Church changes. Because the minute we become like the Pharisees and the scribes and we begin to think we're actually better than others, we won't be gracious. We'll be condemning. See, our God's a God of grace and truth and he's still looking for people that want to follow his example and extend grace and truth to others. I love the story. I've used it before and I hate to use it because every time I read it, even sitting in my office reading it, it makes me tear up. But it's by Tony Campalo, who's a minister out of Philadelphia. And he was visiting Hawaii, and because of the time change, he was up 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock every morning, so he would go down to the street where there was this all-night diner, and he would have coffee. And one night while he's sitting in there having coffee, a group of ladies come in, and they sit at the table next to him, and it's pretty apparent by their clothing that they're prostitutes. And he's listening to their conversation, and as they're talking, one of them mentions that the next day is going to be her birthday. And, of course, the prostitutes respond to her, you know, what do you want us to do, have a party for you or something? They just kind of play it down. But let me just kind of pick up the story. Kampala writes this. It was a woman named Agnes, and she said, no, I don't expect that. No one's ever had a birthday party for me. When they all left, I asked the guy who was behind the counter, do they come in here every night? The man responded, yeah. Kampala said, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come back tomorrow night, and I'd like to throw a birthday party for Agnes. The guy at the counter said, okay, I guess that sounds like fun. What else is there to do around here at 3 o'clock in the morning? He called to his wife, and his wife came out of the back, all bright and smiley. Once she was told of the plan, she too responded, that's wonderful, Agnes is one of those people who's really nice, but nobody ever does anything for her. Look, I said, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll get back here tomorrow about 2.30 and I'll decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. Harry said, no way, that's the guy behind the counter. The birthday cake is my thing, I'm gonna make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner with crepe paper decorations and big pieces of cardboard that said, happy birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. <laughs> it was wall-to-wall -wall with prostitutes and me. At 3.30, 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friends. I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC. When they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never had I seen someone so flabbergasted, so stunned. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her, and she was led to one of the stools so she could sit down. We all sang happy birthday to her. When we came to the end of our singing, Agnes, her eyes moistened, and when, they, and when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Blow out the candles. If you don't blow the candles out, I'll blow them out. A few seconds later, he did. <laughs> then he handed her the knife and said, cut the cake. Agnes looked at the cake, then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it okay with you if I just keep the cake for a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, it's okay. I mean, if you want to keep the cake, keep it. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she asked. Then looking at me, she said, 
I, I just live down the street a couple of doors. I'll take the cake home and I'll be right back, I promise. She took off, picked up the cake, carried it out like it was the holy grail and walked toward the door. We just stood there motionless. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed her life would be changed and God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then he almost sneered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd go to it. We'd all go to it, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we all love to go to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Let me tell you something. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got the one that's so prim and proper. But anyone who reads the Gospels will discover a Jesus who loved to just shed grace on truth and all the left out people of the world. And I'm, I'm guessing we'll never have an encounter as dramatic as this one. But I do know from personal experience there's no, nothing in life like extending grace and truth to someone who desperately needs it. So maybe a good question to close with this weekend is this. Who are you bringing to the party? Because I can guarantee you there's somebody in your world that's just waiting to get invited. You know, There's somebody in your neighborhood whose life's a disaster and they're just waiting for a knock on the door. Somebody you work with is waiting for just one significant spiritual conversation. Somebody you know somewhere is just one relationship from coming to the party. I think the question is, who is it? Who is it? I want to close this weekend by saying this. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done in your life. I want you to understand you are welcome at this church and you're in good company because we're all messed up. We're all screwed up in many ways. We all have our issues. We're all, we're all 500s and that's the truth. And what every one of us in our life need is an incredible dose of grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Are you in bondage this weekend? Are you living a lie? The truth will set you free. And Jesus stands ready to just pour out his grace on you. Let's pray. I don't know what your situation is, and I don't know how, where you are in your relationship with God, or even if you have one, or maybe you do and you're far away from God. And maybe you're, maybe you're afraid to come back to him. Well, here's the truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He offers and extends to you grace right now. 
Maybe there's somebody in your life, maybe somebody you're sitting beside right now, maybe they've betrayed you and hurt you, and you have an opportunity to extend grace. And maybe it's got to be seasoned with truth. Before we can go forward, these are some things that are going to have to happen in our relationship, but you know what? I'm going to extend to you grace. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve because that's what my God gave me. Father, we thank you that you're a gracious God. We thank you, as Lamentations tells us, that your mercies are renewed every morning and your faithfulness is great. Father, it wasn't for your grace. If we got what we deserved, oh, what we deserve is hell. But what you offered us was your son so that our lives could be changed. Father, for those of us who have the impression that you're just a mean, judgmental God and we can't run back to you, just remind us this weekend you're a God of grace and you continue to extend it to us. But you're going to tell us the truth about our lives so that they can be brought in alignment with what you've called us to be and do so we can bring honor and glory to you. May we walk away from here with that lesson this weekend. In your most holy, gracious name we pray.